This is Archbishop Blaise Supich, Archbishop of Chicago. Today, I invite you to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a non-for-profit apostolate dedicated to the mission of evangelization that utilizes media, both old and new, to share the faith on every continent and facilitate an encounter with Christ in His Church. The efforts of Word on Fire Catholic Ministries engage the culture and bring the transformative power of God's Word where it is most needed. This is an invitation to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. When our hearts are open, the Lord changes and transforms us so that we in turn begin to share the warmth and light of Jesus Christ, who is the Word on Fire. The global benefactors of Word on Fire Catholic Ministries, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you, and a blessed Palm Sunday to everybody. We've come, friends, to the climax of the Lenten season. We've come to the climax of the Church's year, the beginning of Holy Week. And it's our great privilege every Palm Sunday to read at Mass one of the Passion narratives from Matthew, Mark, or Luke. On Good Friday, we always hear the Passion narrative from St. John. The German scholar Martin Kehler famously said at the beginning of the 20th century that the Gospels are Passion narratives with long introductions. And that's struck most scholars as pretty much right. They're dominated by the story of Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. And the rest of the Gospel, in some ways, is a lengthy introduction to that story. You know, part of the problem is the very familiarity of this story can undermine our understanding of it. I mean, it just sort of rolls off the tongue or swims effortlessly through the mind. We've, we've heard this story so many times that we barely attend to it. I imagine a lot of us, even as we stand up for the lengthy reading of the Passion Narrative, we, oh yeah, that's the Passion Narrative, and then we more or less stop listening. So what I want to do in this homily is to draw our attention to four odd details of Mark's account, four things that are distinctive, they're unique to his telling of the story. And I think it, it allows us to, to defamiliarize the story a bit and to bring out some features that we would normally overlook. So Mark's passion begins with a story that few of us probably readily associate with a passion narrative. But listen, while Jesus is at the home of Simon the leper, a woman entered with an alabaster jar of perfume. Breaking the jar open, she poured the perfume on Jesus' head. That's how the passion narrative begins. On Mark's telling, it's the story that commences Holy Week. It's as though the perfume from that broken uh, jar wafts over the whole of Holy Week. This extravagant act, let's face it, wasting something as expensive as an entire jar of perfume. Now, mind you, in the ancient world, this was really the case. Today, you might say, well, you know, any, any you know, dime store, you can pick up a, a, a jar of perfume. But in the ancient world, this was very expensive stuff. This extravagant act, therefore, is kind of sniffed at by all those around. I mean, what's the point of this waste? 
this perfume, as Judas says, could have been sold and the money given to the poor. But Jesus praises the woman for her act of generosity, promising, truly enough as it turns out, that this act would be forever remembered. I find that very moving that 2,000 years later, we do indeed remember this act. Why does Mark use this tale as a preface to his whole account? Why, as I say, does he allow the, the savor, the odor of this perfume to waft over the whole of the Passion narrative? I think it's because by this action, the woman shows the meaning of the Passion a total gift of self. You know, Immanuel Kant, the 18th century philosopher, wrote a book called Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone. And that was typical of the Enlightenment. People wanted to express religion in rational terms. But I agree with Paul Tillich, who said, you can never express religion in rational terms alone. Now, mind you, I'm a Catholic theologian, I take reason seriously. I love all the, the rational theologies that our tradition has produced, but I agree with Tillich that Kant's wrong. You can't or shouldn't reduce religion to reason alone. Just as there is nothing calculating, careful, or conservative, reasonable about what this woman does, giving everything away, breaking open the jar, more importantly, breaking open her own heart and love, just there's nothing purely calculating or reasonable or careful about that. So in regard to all of religion, all of authentic religion, involves this extravagant offer of self. Her act anticipates Jesus' own, let's face it, kind of unreasonable act. Do you really have to go to that extreme, you might say? You have to go to the extreme of, of crucifixion? Yes, and we're called to a similar extravagance in love. Here's a second image now from Mark. We hear that at the end of the Last Supper, after singing songs of praise, they walked out to the Mount of Olives. Now, what's the Mount of Olives here? But that's where Gethsemane is. So Jesus entering into the greatest suffering of his life that will lead to his crucifixion. And just before that, what's he doing with his disciples? He's singing. Now, mind you, this is Jesus' last night on earth, and he knows it. Tomorrow is his execution, and he knows it. There's something terribly desperate and final about this night. Think of somebody who's in prison on death row and he's going to be executed the next morning and his family's come to visit him. So imagine that scene. What's the conversation like? Well, I mean, you can imagine how, how strained, how painful, how kind of awful that um, last meeting would be. What's about the last thing you'd expect that little uh, group of people to do? I would submit to you, it would be to sing. But that's what Jesus does the night before he dies. Is there something a little bit odd, even macabre, about this scene? 
The point is, Jesus knows, and the church knows with him, that this singing is in fact altogether appropriate. It is not to deny the terror of the night, nor the seriousness of what will follow, but it is to acknowledge that an act of total love is the passage to the fullness of life. That's why he sings. How fascinating that at every Mass we sing. But see, what's the Mass, everybody? But a remembrance of that terrible night and of the even more terrible day that would follow it. You know, as a, as a priest, I use these words all the time. Just before the consecration, I say, the night before he died, or the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. What I'm invoking is that awful moment. This man's about to die, and he knows it. It's the night before he died. And right after the consecration, what do we do? We sing. And we sing our way all through the Mass. Strange, isn't it? Odd. But wonderful, because it's teaching this deep spiritual truth that through this awful path, we come to life. Here's a third odd scene, peculiar to Mark. There was a young man following him who was covered by nothing but a linen cloth. As they seized him, he left the cloth behind and ran off naked. Now, the setting here is the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has gone to pray. He's then been betrayed by Judas and arrested. The ear of the high priest slave has been severed by Peter. And now all the disciples, understandably, have fled. It's this awful moment of truth. Jesus has been arrested. But then we hear this odd detail of this kid, this young man, who's wearing nothing but this um, flimsy garment, I guess you'd say. And then when they grab it, he runs off naked. Now, can I suggest to you what's going on here is something similar to what a Renaissance painter does when he puts a contemporary figure in a biblical scene. You know, there'll be a depiction of of a scene from the Bible, but then there's a sort of oddly contemporary figure that's in the scene. What he's doing, what the painter's doing, is putting you, he's putting his audience in the scene. Imagine like if there was a picture of the crucifixion, but suddenly there's a a guy in in a 21st century business suit looking up at Calvary. It's a similar thing. It's putting us in the scene. Why do I say it now about this young man? Well, he's described as a follower of Jesus. Well, that's code, isn't it, in the Bible? It's code for discipleship, the following of Jesus. What's he wearing, this flimsy garment? Well, the Greek term is syndona. What's a syndona? It's the word that's used for the garment worn by the newly baptized. So when someone was baptized in the ancient church, they were, they were stripped, they were oiled up, they were put under the water, they were washed clean, and then they put this syndona on them, this white garment. The point is, this is a 
baptized follower of Jesus who finds himself, and again, I'm speaking anachronistically here, who finds himself placed in the scene at the moment of truth when they've come to get Jesus, what does the baptized person do? Well, he runs away and leaves behind his baptismal garment. See, here's the point. To be a follower of Jesus is to walk a dangerous path. His path led to the cross, and those who follow him, what does he say? Take up your cross every day and come after me. An authentic Christian life is always sure to upset the powers that be. To stand with Jesus, therefore, is to accept his fate with courage. The shame of this young man is that at the moment of truth, he fled, leaving behind his baptismal identity. Where, by the way? Precisely in the hands of Jesus' enemies. The question this young man raises is, what do we do, we who wear the same garment? What do we do at the moment of truth? Here's a final episode now I want to focus on. After the death of Jesus, we hear, at that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The moment is Jesus' death. The curtain is the one that shields the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the temple, where only the high priest could venture once a year. It's where the holiest exchange between divinity and humanity happened. At Jesus' death, that curtain is torn in two so that now everyone has access to the Holy of Holies. In Jesus' great act of love and sacrifice, the communion between divinity and humanity has been utterly and fully realized. It's in the torn body of the Son of God, given away in love, that we see right in to the Holy of Holies. Friends, let those four images from Mark's passion narrative sort of waft through your own mind this Holy Week. And God bless you. Thank you for listening to The Word on Fire. My prayer is that each of us may be on fire with love for God and neighbor. Until next week, I pray that God will bless you and those you love. Friends, holiness is heroism. And we need heroic priests. That's why we partnered with Spirit Jew Studios to create a short film highlighting the demands and joys of the priesthood. Watch the entire film for free and share it with all the young men you know by visiting heroicpriesthood.com.